Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. All right, to kick this episode of On the Wing Pad podcast off, I'm going to read Chad Love's words back to him uh, from the Quail Forever and Pheasants Forever super issue. And here's, here's Chad's um, uh, opening words to the story titled Seven Traits of the Successful Public Land Quail Hunter. There's no sugarcoating it. Sometimes it's tough being a public land quail hunter. There are other hunters to avoid. Bird numbers can be limited. Opportunities and access can be fleeting or distance. And results can be discouraging. But hey, that's hunting. Work matters. View public land quail hunting through the wrong filter and with the wrong mentality. And disappointment will be the only thing you bag. Instead, take a fresh approach, adopt some new attitudes, and look at things in a new light. Quail are just a joy to hunt. Here are seven traits and tricks that you can use to elevate your success on public land quail. Those are the words of Chad Love, and this is your seven traits of being a successful public land quail hunting episode. We did the pheasant version a couple weeks back and quail hunting starts a little bit later in most states than uh, pheasant hunting. So we delayed this one a l- just a little bit and hopefully the super issue is now in your hands and you can read this story number by number as we go through Chad's tips um, in this episode of On the Wing Podcast. So there's the long-winded intro, Chad. Uh, welcome back to the podcast. How are you doing? Yeah, thanks for having me. It's It's been a while since I've been on. I've forgotten how to use my fancy equipment. <laughs> As evidenced by, uh, we're doing this old school. We're, uh, we're doing it basically via the radio, or I'm sorry, via the phone. I can't see you. But, but I can uh, see you. You can see me. So so a couple of Gen Xers are limping their way along through the podcast world today. I'm just sitting here in my Scooby-Doo pajamas. <laughs> and you don't know Zoink. any better. No, no, no. You just stepped on my touchdown oh. call. Oh. Zoinks! <laughs> uh, well, all right. Let's give them... Um, for folks, uh, so first of all, I'm trying to remember the last podcast you were on it, and I think it was the one with Reed Bryant, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was, where Reed okay. and I just pontificated endlessly about all sorts of weird stuff. Uh, it was good, though. Literature and um, and a passion for, for bird hunting and good dogs, and uh, it was a good conversation, even if I was an innocent bystander to it. <laughs> you were collateral damage. <laughs> Uh, for folks that haven't heard you on the podcast before, uh, give us a, a brief overview of the man, the myth, the legend that is Chad Love. Where are you from? What do you do? Well, you know, it's going to be a very brief overview coming from me. So I am Chad Love. I am the uh, Quail Forever journal editor, and uh, I live in northwest Oklahoma. I'm a lifelong Oklahoman. Uh, 
sooner born, sooner bred. You mentioned growing up in Oklahoma and your passion really your whole life has been has been quail, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. You know, I, I grew up, um, you know, sort of a suburban latchkey kid. And my first introduction to quail was uh, uh, was kicking up birds without a dog uh, in, in brushy, overgrown fence lines on the outskirts of Norman and Noble, Oklahoma. Hmm. They, uh, uh, they, they, they bewitched me at an early age, and I've just been, uh, been transfixed by them ever since. <laughs> um, and it, tell us, the season ahead, you know, it's a little bit further for quail hunting, but I know that's not going to stop you from getting out into the uplands and chasing some other species. What, what's on your um, calendar for this season? Where are you starting and where are you finishing? So, so like, I've always said that, that quail are my, my spirit animal and my totem bird, and, and that's true, but, uh, but grouse, prairie grouse especially, are just like just a, a hair below that. I absolutely love prairie grouse. Uh, and so, you know, every year I, uh, I, I typically will, will try to hunt chickens and sharp tails once those seasons start up in Kansas, Nebraska. This year I'm, I'm mixing it up a little bit. I have never hunted dusky grouse. I've mm. never hunted any mountain grouse at all or, or any wood grouse, for lack of a better term, grouse that live in the woods, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm, I'm heading to New Mexico uh, actually in a couple of days. I'm uh, going to hunt dusky grouse over there for a little bit. And then... Uh, I'm actually considering next week, early next week. Oh yeah, I haven't told you this. I'm taking a couple of days off next week. Um, uh, to, uh, I'm just going to knock around ptarmigan country for a couple of days. Not oh. necessarily, not necessarily to like specifically hunt ptarmigan, but just to mm -hmm. kind of see see what the scene looks like and see if I could possibly hunt ptarmigan and just kind of poke around and take a fly rod with me. Maybe do a little bit of fishing too. Uh, and so. so is this Colorado? Yeah. I'm just going to okay. like hop the border into Colorado and spend a couple days just knocking around by myself. Uh, mm -hmm. No, no real itinerary or, or expectations just to kind of see where the, uh, see where, where the, the, the muse takes me. So uh... <laughs> it's funny. You would, you would cart both. Um, it drop your, your um, vacation requests on podcasts before you enter them <laughs> into the, into the official employee uh, um, system. So that's, well, that's must be editor, uh, universal language for editors. Well, no, it's just smart tactics because you can't say no. <laughs> right, right. You know, how are you going to deny that? I just, I just announced it on a podcast. <laughs> well, apparently you and Carp are on the same wavelength in that regard. Mm -hmm. uh, all right, hey, so. Uh, bastard to say no to that <laughs> well you know me well enough then don't you <laughs> uh, all right so new mexico to colorado and then what uh then i'm heading for uh, nebraska mid-september to do sharp tails and chickens okay. uh, nebraska is kind of a it's uh i started hunting there oh god a long time ago uh it was well before i i started uh work for for qf and just fell in love with with western nebraska and with that uh, that terrain so i'm going to go up there and uh and do just a solo you know sharp tailed chicken hunt in the central part of the state and then uh in early october going back to nebraska actually on a work trip uh, to uh, uh film a a little piece that uh, that we're working on i don't know how specific i need to get with that Oh, uh, you don't have to get very specific. I'm just um, so you've talked a number of different grouse species. What's your first quail hunt of the season? First, uh, it'll be here. It'll be home. Uh, okay. I, I'm pretty sure. Let's see. Uh, I say that. 
I'm thinking, yeah, it'll probably be Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska. Uh, last year I did a, the, the way, at least last year, the way that the seasons lined up, you know, the, the Nebraska season opened up a, a little bit early. So I was able to, to, to actually do a story on it uh, last year. Uh, I started in Nebraska, hit Kansas, and then hit Oklahoma on the way home. And I don't know if I'll be so ambitious this year, but I'll probably, the Oklahoma and Kansas seasons usually open about the same time. So I'll hunt Oklahoma and Kansas. Those will probably be my first two hunts. Hmm. And people are really starting to talk about what are the bird numbers going to be like in the pheasant states. Um, what, what's the chatter in the quail world? What are you, what are you hearing? What are you seeing? <laughs> You're not going to put me on the spot. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I haven't really heard a whole lot. Uh, mm. I So I, I've seen a little bit. I have some anecdotal evidence of my own. Mm -hmm. uh, and this could be totally wrong. I mean, every year, everyone says, you know, oh, there's going to be birds or oh, there's not going to be birds. And typically what happens is the opposite, you know. You, mm. And so just from what I have seen personally around my area, I think my suspicion is that we had a decent early hatch. Uh, but then it got brutally hot and dry here, middle of the summer. And I don't know that we that we had any secondary hatch or any late hatch or anything like that. I, so I typically will ride my bike. I live in a, like a rural area outside of town. And so, uh, I'll, uh, on weekends I'll, I'll, I'll hop on my bike and, and go on rides trying to keep from being fat. Uh, and so <laughs> I, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll have a circuit around a bunch of gravel roads. And so I've been seeing some, uh, you know, several coveys of half-grown, you know, brood coveys on the side of the road. So mm -hmm. I've seen birds. Uh, I just don't know how many birds we're going to have when the season starts. Sure. Uh, and of course, a lot of the, the data uh, hasn't really been collated or, or come out yet. So you'll just have to wait for the uh, for the 2022 Quail Forever Quail Forecast to, to find out. And there you go. And that'll be early October when mm -hmm. that comes out. All right. So we're going to dive into your Super Issue article, Seven Traits of the Successful Public Land Quail Hunter. It's the the foil, the companion article to uh, Carp's pheasant version. Um, it, granted, you're not in love with writing listicle stories, but there's a lot of um, nuggets in here in your story that um, I think for the, the quail hunter, particularly the person that's relatively new to quail hunting, there's a lot of nuggets in here that can help a person become a better bird hunter. Um, so we're going we're gonna to do the uh, old David Letterman top 10 list, only you have seven. So, <laughs> but that's okay. Um, so we're going to, we're going to knock them down one by one and ask you to kind of give your extemporaneous thoughts as to why you, why you selected the ones you did. Um, all right. So here they are. Drum roll. Uh, seven traits for the successful public land quail hunter. Number seven. And I think this is universally true for all bird hunting. Um, and you write, number one trait is have a big, or number seven trait, if we're going to count down, have a big game mentality and slash be a year-round scouter. Um, tell us a little bit more about your thought process there. Why, why should a bird hunter think in terms of a big game hunter? Well, because, you know, and, and I used to be a pretty ardent big game hunter. And so, like, I would I would go out in the summer and I would scout deer. You know, I would hang mm -hmm. 
hang game cameras. I would I would like you know sit in glass, and and that kind of helped me learn patterns. It learned you know it 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 gave me an idea of what was in the area, and and it kind of prepared me. It kind of that gave me a little bit of expectation when fall got there. And I don't know that a lot of bird hunters actually do that. And of course, like if, if you're traveling, obviously to, to hunt a place, you, you can't you can't scout year round. But you know, if you're talking like in your area, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you, you got to know what's out there. You know, and it's mm-hmm. like I, I every time that I see, so I, I take the approach that like every time that I see a quail in the wild, I figure I can learn something from it. You know, mm-hmm. and. Uh, one of the, one of my favorite things to do is go out in the summertime, and this was actually the instigator for a, a, a photo essay I did for the fall issue. Like one of my favorite things to do in the summertime is I was like I'm a bird watcher, I'm a birder, so I will go out and uh, uh, on a you know wherever I happen to be hunting, whether it's a, a public hunting area that shall rename unnamed or, or or private or whatever. You know I like to go out and I'll just sit with a pair of binoculars in an area where I think there might be quail, and I'll just listen. You know, and eventually, if you sit long enough, and if you watch long enough, you'll see quail, you know, and you can learn a lot from those quail, you know, what are they in? You know, what are they doing? How are they? How are they acting? And Ooh. so it's like you, you kind of get a sense of what those quail live like outside the, the, the fall hunting season, you know, if, if that makes any sense. And plus, you know, for just from a from a familiarity of the landscape aspect, yeah. you know, it's like a lot of big WMAs will will be, at least in, in Oklahoma, you know, a lot of our WMAs are, are 10, 12, 15,000 acres, you know? And so you, it takes a while to learn a place like that. And so if you, if you spend a little time in the off season, putting some boot leather down on those areas, finding out, you know, where, where good looking draws are, where sand plum thickets are, you know, where are those areas where you think you might find quail in the fall? And kind of you know log them either in your head or you know on onyx or wherever and so that at least when you roll into the season you know you have an idea at least the the vague notion of a game plan mm-hmm. and you you talked about um binoculars glassing um and you mentioned that in the in the story too and you know you, you even call it out yes i use binoculars i glass for quail do you use binoculars um, in during the hunting season, glassing oh, for quail too. You do, yeah. yeah. So, so here's a perfect example. So, you know, like if you're if you're hunting a state that has a lot of walk-in access, mm-hmm. um, a lot of times, you know, a lot of those pieces of ground will be, you know, uh, 160. It'll be a quarter section or a half section or even a you know a full section. You're talking hundreds of acres of of, of land, and oftentimes you'll only have county road access to like one side of it mm-hmm. so you it, a lot of time and i've run into this a lot you know a lot of times you'll roll by a piece of weha or, or olap or you know whatever the acronym is in whatever state you're in and you'll see a piece of ground that happens to be fairly large but it doesn't look all that great mm-hmm. well if you got a pair of binoculars the other side of that property may look a whole lot better than the side that you're on and so mm-hmm. it just gives you a, another tool to kind of scout a piece of property you know, and, and determine, you know, and sometimes you can't tell with binoculars and you have to get out and walk it. But a lot of times, you know, if you just have a pair of binoculars with you, you can look and you can see, oh, well, you know, that that back section looks 
a little better than this one. It might be worth a walk. So, mm-hmm. and you've already teased. You didn't even tease it. You went straight forward. Number two, um, you mentioned Onyx, um, in, in in which is fitting because. And so number two, you say a number two trait or number six trait of the um, successful quail hunter is to embrace scouting technology. And you write, if you're not combining trait number one with modern online scouting and mapping tools, it's like you're walking with one foot in a bucket of concrete. So <laughs> I, I very much liked your, uh, it, it may be a listicle article, but you still have the Chad Love flair for words. <laughs> um, and I appreciated that. But, but Onyx goes with scouting hand in hand, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does, you know, and, and I'll, I will admit right up front that for a long time, I was a Luddite. I, I relied on that. And I'm going to I'm going to call out Kansas as, as one example, you know, for years, I relied on that horrible Weehaw map, you know, mm. that I, well, OK, it's not horrible. Well, yeah, it is kind of horrible because I, I, got, I got lost using that thing a lot, uh, <laughs> you know, like the, the booklet, the Weehaw booklet. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, and you can navigate, you know, using the old school booklet and map and, and all that, but it's just so time consuming. You have no idea what it looks like, you know, uh, until you get there. And Onyx was was a game changer for me. I mean, I was I was very hesitant to use it at first because, um, you know, I, I do have this like, you know, suspicion of technology uh, just because I, I can't ever figure it out, you know. Uh, blinking VCR syndrome. Well, I just dated myself. Uh, another Gen yeah, X reference. Yeah, tried and true Gen X over there. Yeah, uh, but but big once brothers I, watching you, Chad. Yeah. But once I figured out the basics, uh, mm-hmm. it's like I just like there's just no going back, you know. Yeah, and it, and especially if you're hunting areas that you aren't familiar with, uh, then it's just it's almost it's like why wouldn't you? It's, it it is. It's like like walking with one foot in a bucket of concrete, you know, you're just having to drag yourself along right, rather than right. have a good idea of, of where you're going and what it looks like when you get there. Mm-hmm. Well, it's fitting. It is certainly um, using Onyx, using technology showed up on Carp's pheasant um, tips as well. It is a universal tool, whether you're hunting elk, moose, pheasants, or quail, Onyx is a... Um, um, tremendous game changer that's really entered every aspect of the hunting world in the last decade. If you want to find more birds this hunting season, look no further than the Onyx Hunt app. Private and public land boundaries just begin to scratch the surface as Onyx has countless tools to make you a safer and more successful hunter. Onyx is trusted by millions of hunters across the U.S., including me, and you can join them by downloading the app for a risk-free seven-day trial. Use the code pheasants or quail during checkout for 20% off your membership at onyxhunt.com. And you'll be glad to learn that a portion of all Onyx sales using these codes goes back to support Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's wildlife habitat mission, leading to better habitat, more wild birds, and creating more public lands for all of us. Thanks to Onyx. All right. Up next, 
we go from you know new technology to old school getting your fat butt in shape uh put down the big macs and um put down the beer uh get in shape right yeah i mean that's <laughs> the and i hate to to stereotype bird hunters uh but let's face it i mean a lot of bird hunters were we're not the youngest demographic in the world although that's changing and and mm -hmm. hopefully changing quickly but there are a lot of hunters out there who quite frankly can't keep up with the dogs they own you know mm -hmm. and uh and i was the same way you know that I, I speak from experience here when i started this job let's see when when i started i was i think i was 47 or 48 you know no spring chicken obviously uh, but the job that I came from, I, I, you know, I, I had a corporate card and traveled the country and, and, and was able to, you know, drink beer and, and, and eat meals on the company dime. And, and it was a kind of a sedentary job and I gained a little bit of weight. And so I, my, my, my uh, road to Damascus moment was on the, <laughs> the, the side of a mountain in Arizona on my first Mearns hunt. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, Chad, you, you're, you're fat. And mm -hmm. you, you know, you can't, uh, if you want to keep doing this, you better, you better get in shape. And, uh, and so I did, and it has made all the difference in the world for me in, in terms of, of not only my enjoyment of, of the season and of, of the hunting, but also in, in my efficiency and my effectiveness. You're just, you just become, if you can put one foot in front of the other and put down the miles, you're, you are by definition going to be a more efficient, more successful hunter. It's just that mm. simple, you know. You can't you can't waddle out into the field, and you know, go 600 yards gasping for breath and expect to to have a lot of success. You gotta you gotta have a, a bare level, you know, a, a base level of of uh, physical stamina. And uh, whether it be running, hiking, biking, weightlifting, it, do you think it's it's all beneficial, or is there one thing that if somebody needs a place to start that you would say is um, most beneficial to the bird hunter? You know, it's such an individual thing. You know, for mm -hmm. me, um, I mean, when I was younger, I ran a lot. Believe it or not, Bob, I used to be really skinny. <laughs> and uh, and so I, when I was younger in, in high school and college, I was a, a an avid runner. You know, I, I ran, I don't know how many miles a week I ran, but it was a lot. And as you get older, you know, some people, their knees kind of like, they just can't run like they used to. And so I kind of, when I first dedicated myself to kind of like, you know, getting back into sort of shape, um, I, I started running again and I quickly found out that, you know, oh, my knees, like I've got a finite number of steps on my knees. I think I want to save them for bird hunting. So mm -hmm. I was also used to, you know, in college, I, I loved to mountain bike. And so I, I got back into biking and, and biking was the one that, that really kind of, I first started with. And then mm -hmm. I kind of got into, um, you know, for me, I, I, I got into weight training a little bit. Um, so, you know, and, and that, I think that's helped me a lot, not necessarily with the stamina, but just, just overall health. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, I think it's just such an individual thing. If, if you're 45 or 48 years old and you can still run, then run. Uh, if you, you know, if you, if your knees won't allow it, then grab a bike or, or get on a treadmill and walk. Uh, I think any kind of motion is going to be good motion when it comes to to making you better bird hunter. I think that's really good advice, and I had the I was a similar situation with you. I used to run five miles a day, 
you know, I wasn't a marathoner, but I would run five miles a day and I was in good physical condition. But then the pounding of running on concrete, it wasn't my knees. It was a bulging disc in my neck. And, you know, the, the doctor's like, you just, you got to find a different exercise because running is just pounding on your body and it's just too hard. So for me, like you love biking, that's kind of, you know, it was fun and exercise. For me, it's, it's a cross country skiing. And although it's cold in Minnesota, it's not skiing weather year round. Um, so it's, in, it's an elliptical machine in the summer. Um, you know, it's something that has that movement, but it, um, it doesn't have the physical pounding on the body, but yeah, which is like you say, fantastic. You, you know, you get, you get into your mid forties and beyond and your metabolism just flat out slows down. It does. It, it, it slowed, it slowed down at 30. It slowed down in 40 and it precipitously declines every year <laughs> after 40. And, uh, you know, you just, you can't eat what you did 10 years ago, or I can't, I can't, you know, I can't have a couple of beers and not feel it anymore. And so the, the high that, uh, um, has replaced a couple of beers is, is endorphins from exercise. Yeah, that's absolutely it. It's like, so all you young dudes out there, you know, chugging your beers and slim gins, and that's what you're living on, you know. This is your future. <laughs> it is. All right. Um, probably my favorite piece of writing in this article comes uh, with number four, the the fourth tip, and it's titled "Slow Down, Speed Up." And I'm going to read your words back to you because. Um, I just like doing that. Uh, Here we go. There's a misconception that quail, specifically bobwhite quail, are sedate, gentlemanly birds. They have good manners to not run, to hold beautifully for your dogs, and to wait patiently while you idly saunter up to flush them. Wrong! That wildly inaccurate cliché has been perpetuated by generations of outdoors or outdoor writers whose skill at writing fiction far exceeds their experience in hunting actual quail. Public land quail of all species are survivors. So I, so I, I really, really enjoyed that. And I, I think, you know, if we're going on cliches, scaled quail, gambles quail, to an extent, valley quail have have the um, kind of the um, understanding that they are, are track stars. People recognize that, but but you're right. Like Bob White quail have this uh, perception about them of the, oh, they're just they hold super tight and wait for you to approach and you know, wait forever for your pointing dog and you can release the flusher and and. While that can be the case sometimes, that's really not the case, particularly wild bobwhite quail in the Great Plains. And, and that's what you're getting at, isn't it? Right. I, you know, and, and so I, I have a theory about quail, and, and an evolutionary biologist would probably call me out on this and tell me I'm full of it, or any wild biologist probably would. But I, I, I tend to think or, or, or take the opinion that a quail's behavior is dictated less by species or species traits than Mm. it is terrain and cover Mm. you know uh because i you know i I have no doubt that if you hunt 
birds in, in heavy cover of any species, the safety of that cover is going to give them a little bit more sense of of safety, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, and so, like, and I base that on on having seen in sparse cover, seen a bobwhite quail run every bit as quickly as a scaled quail. Mm-hmm. And conversely, in thicker cover, I've I've hunted scale quail that held like bobs. Yeah, you know, and and so I, I think it, I think that you can make some sort of general, gen, general generalizations, if that's a word, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, about about the various species of birds, mm-hmm. but that's all they are, just general, mm-hmm. you know, generalizations. Uh, I think it is much more dictated by what you're actually hunting. And out here, at least, uh, the, the cover does, t- in a lot of places, uh, tends to be a little sparser than, you know, a blackberry bramble in Missouri. Yeah. And so Bob Whites are going to be, you know, they're going to have a tendency to run more. It, it's right on the money because you explained, you know, this hunting. I, I know hunting scale quail in New Mexico last year, you were hunting, um, you know, thicker cover and the birds were holding well. And you know what? I had this same experience in southern Arizona where much grassier cover than I was used to hunting scaled quail in, say, West Texas. And the scaled quail were holding for points, and I could walk up and flush them rather than them getting up wild like they do a lot of times in thin cover where it's more arid. So so you're right. They, I, I, would, I think that uh, you're on to something there with it's more of a function. I mean, there's certain traits that are prevalent and stereotypes that are, there's some rationale behind that, but it's not always true. And part of what breaks that is um, the, the heaviness of the cover. So I, I think that there's some accuracy to your assessment there. Yeah, you know, and I like, I didn't hunt Merns. Well, I did hunt Merns last year, but uh, the first time that I ever hunted Merns, I had read all the the literature about Merns and about how they were like the perfect bird for dogs because they held so tight and and you know uh, people called them fool quail because they held so tight and and on my first hunt I mean I got some of that but I also got wild flushing Merns quail that you know I, I was like hold on they they're they're not supposed to be doing that so mm-hmm. I, I I never I, I try to never really uh, think that that I know a bird based on what I've heard about the bird. Yeah, which is a perfect transition to number three on your list. Research the unfamiliar, then embrace it. And you coin a term here, at least I think you coined a term that I haven't heard before. Upland familiarity bias. Explain what this one means, Chad, because I think this is a pretty... um, um, a pretty powerful thought here, as as far as tips go. Yeah, I, I'm. I hope I coined it. I I. Uh, I think I want to trademark it if I have. I, I think it's pretty clever. <laughs> Probably not. There's nothing new under the sun. But no. So I, I've thought about this a lot because. So I live in an area of Northwest Oklahoma, that is is fairly popular with out of state hunters, and it's uh, I live you know it's the high rolling plains. Uh, sand hills, uh, large tracts of, of unbroken sagebrush, you know, sand sage uh, and native grasses in a lot of areas that hold a lot of quail. There's not a lot of obvious quaily looking cover, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I get 
I, I get a lot of hunters come from other parts of the country, specifically the southeastern states uh, or, or the upper Midwest or, or you know, back east. Uh, and and so they get out here and they'll they'll roll up onto a, you know, a WMA and and they'll they'll not know where to to start. You know, it, it all looks the same. It all looks a little bit uniform. Mm-hmm. And so they 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 kind of tend to fall back on what they know. And that's I, and I guess that's the, the basis of of that yep. term is like you go somewhere and if you if you're confronted by the unfamiliar, you always have that tendency to fall back on what you know. And so a lot of those those hunters will end up like heading down into a river bottom are are, are trying to find some type of like a, a fence row or a shelter belt or you know, brushy cover, you know, something that, that, that screams this, this looks like a quail spot. And that's not always the case, you know? Um, so it like for out instance out here, you know, you, and, and quail are, are edge and transitioning birds. You just have to figure out, you have to learn how to, to identify different types of those transition areas, you know, those zones mm. that they live in and, the zones that they live in out here don't always look like the zones that they live in back there. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. It, it feels like a few years ago you went on a sage grouse hunt. And it feels to me like that, that sage grouse hunt, when you walked into a sea of sage and had to figure out where the transitions, where the, the changes in the sage where you found birds, it feels like that to me made you a better quail hunter. Oh, I, is that, I, I, is that accurate? Yeah, I think so. Because I yeah, went into that absolutely blind, had, had never hunted sage grouse before, uh, and, and struggled quite frankly, you know, mm-hmm. and but until I, I, you know, kind of remembered, it's like, okay, well, this is sagebrush. It's a different kind of sagebrush, but it's the same kind of sagebrush that I hunt back home. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what do I need to look for to make it to make areas within this seemingly homogenous area stand out? Right. And so that's that's what I did. All right. Number two on your list, you say pay attention to the small stuff. And you and in carp are very much in lockstep here. You write, do not overlook a tiny little patch of public ground that almost everyone else will drive by. Um, trying to find the quote-unquote big country beyond the horizon. Um, I, so I didn't know this about you, that you you do look for the little parcels. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so, and what really, I think, um, taught me that was was growing up as a kid mm-hmm. and and finding birds in tiny little spaces, you know, because hmm. when, when I was a kid, I... I didn't have a lot of places to hunt. And so, and I, the places that I could hunt were always on the edge of, of suburban development. You know, uh, it was, it was going to, you know, it was something like a, it was going to be a subdivision in a few years, you know, these small farms on the edge of the city that were sort of doomed. And so it's just this parcel, like a, just a checkerboard of, of, uh, uh, habitat. And so I would be able to hunt, you know, like I'd have a, a 30 acre, place that I could hunt, you know, maybe a, a 40 acre place that I could hunt. And so I would just, I hit those little small places. And, and when I started hunting 
bigger areas, like, you know, when I was able to drive and get out and start hunting, you know, bigger WMAs, I kind of got away from that for a while. He was like, oh, freedom. I've got a car and I've got a dog and I can get out and, I can, <laughs> you know, hunt 16,000 acres. Why do I want to mess with this like little tiny overlooked little mm-hmm. overgrown areas, right? You know, but those places hold birds. You know, I have areas right around here that every year, like during quail season, I mean, we get a ton of guys or people come in, you know, and they just like, it's the thundering herd and they drive right past these, these little, little, you know, stamp sized areas to get to the big country, which like, you know, there's a ton of birds in the big country, but uh, I like to, to pull up and, and hunt those small little areas and area in places like one state that is, this is really evident in is, is Nebraska for their mm-hmm. open fields and waters. I've really noticed this a lot in Nebraska because up there they will have, you know, an open fields and waters parcel that is just, it's a corner, you know, like mm-hmm. it's a, it's a center pivot corner or it's just a tiny little, you know, five or six acre patch of heavy cover surrounded by, you know, cornfields. And uh, those places, those tiny little, little parcels, will hold birds. I'm talking quail here. I'm not talking pheasants. Right. Uh, sure. like, like last year, uh, the, the when I did my, my three-state odyssey uh, last year, the, the first quail that I shot on, on my trip in Nebraska came on uh, a little, I mean, tiny little microscopic open fields and water site that was basically one shelter belt. And and I, I moved a covey of quail in it, shot a couple birds out of it. Hmm. So, so those little tiny places like that, I think, get overlooked quite a bit. Yeah, I think you're right. I think um, lots of people, you know, especially the ones that have been biking and gotten themselves in shape for the season, <laughs> right? They want to get air in their lungs. They want to go for a big walk. And, uh, you know, we, it does, um, it, you know, those big parcels tend to be a magnet for, for hunting pressure. Um, and those smaller places where you're popping in and out of the truck do often get overlooked and, and can be very productive if you spend a little time on them. Uh, the final item, although there's a bonus one coming, the final number seven, um, or no, it's number one on, on the end of the list here is hit the bookends, um, referring to um, hunt early season and hunt late season. And one of my favorite lines in your article here is, um, midway through you write, many quail hunters in the southern and southwestern climes avoid season openers, referring to wait for that mid-season baby bear porridge weather. What is baby bear porridge weather, Chad? <laughs> it's that... I've thought about that a lot. It's like, what's the perfect <laughs> hunting scenario? It's not too cold. Uh-huh. No, it's not too hot. It's like <laughs> mid sixties, low sixties, you know, sunshiny weather. It's, it's just that the, the kind of stuff you write about, mm-hmm. you know, as, as your perfect day, that's the kind of day that, that I really want to have. Mm-hmm. It's the kind of day that I very, very rarely ever have. Right. You know? And so, so yeah, I, I, hunting the early season it's like an immutable fact of quail hunting is there will never be the number of birds on the place you're hunting there will never be as many birds as there are on opening day mm-hmm. you know that's just a fact and so i do try i don't like hunting early season because it is hot and snaky and buggy and miserable but as long as you do it 
smartly, uh, you can find birds and and you know get out hunt super early, knock it off early. You know, especially if it's hot, you don't ever want to you know push your dogs in hot weather. I try not to do that. That's uh, that can be very mm -hmm. dangerous. But right. hunt the first hour or two. You know, hunt uh, if if you live in a state. Well, like in Oklahoma on public land, you can't hunt past four thirty. So, and I don't typically like hunting late, uh, late anyway, but, you know, hunt the first couple hours of, of the, uh, of the day and then, and then knock it off. Uh, you can find birds and it, you know, it, it gets you out and it, and it gets that, it, it you know, it kind of knocks the dust off or the rest. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. uh, so I, I always do, even though it's not always the, the, the most pleasant experience. So you and Carp both titled your story is the seven traits of the successful public land bird hunter. But then you threw a bonus trait in there. So I don't know. I don't understand why you guys didn't call it the eight successful traits, but, but nevertheless, <laughs> were we going to hit the second part of number seven though? Uh, well, the late season. Yeah. The late season. Well, yeah, go for it. Okay. Because like, that's another, so, so I ran into, so here's a good example. So this past year, I, uh, I ran into a group of quail hunters from South Carolina, actually, that were staying here in town. And maybe they're listening. I don't know. Maybe they remember me. Um, mm. So I, we were uh, in a, a local restaurant eating, and, and they were, oh, probably four or five of them. And I could tell that they were quail hunters because quail season had opened, I think, a couple weeks before. I think this was probably, I think this was mid-November. Uh, but, you know, they had blaze orange hats on, and, you know, you can tell a quail hunter. And so I'm a gregarious sort, you know that. Um, uh, that, that was a joke, but, but no, when, when it comes to bird hunters, I am, uh, so we're sitting next to them and I, I, I leaned over and asked them how they were doing. And so we started up a conversation and they were, they were having, they were having issues finding birds. Oh, they were having issues finding birds for a number of reasons. Uh, last season wasn't great for one. It, it, it was dry. Uh, they, they admitted that they were dealing with a little bit of that upland familiarity bias. Mm -hmm. Uh, they, they didn't really know you know, kind of like they were confronted by this big open space and, and were, were struggling a little bit. Uh, but they they kind of came at a, at a time of year where, you know, it's it's it can be good hunting, but also it can also be really, really miserable weather. It can still be hot and uh, and there can be a lot of crowds, you know. And so I told him was like late season. I mean, the, the weather can be dicey in, you know, January, early February. But generally speaking, you know, you do have, um, there are fewer crowds. Uh, the weather is typically, you know, cold enough to where you don't have to worry about heat or, or snakes or anything like that. And a lot of guys have given up and gone on to other things, whether it's, you know, late season bow hunting or duck hunting or football or whatever. Uh, there are fewer hunters in the field at the, the extreme ends, at extreme late end of the season. And to me, it's one of my favorite times to hunt. Uh, mm. You know, the birds are, are a lot more educated you earn them uh, a lot more than you do in the early season and you have uh, some solitude. So, hmm. so if, if you were to pick what, what are the conditions of your favorite day of hunting? Is it early season, warm, windy, mid season? Is it cold? Like what, what, what's ideal for you? Ideal for me would be probably in terms of, of calendar time, probably December, sometime in mm -hmm. December, at least down here anyway. Mm -hmm. By that time, it's typically, you know, cold, uh, cool enough to where you could, 
you can hunt in like long sleeves and not sweat, mm-hmm. um, but not so cold that it's miserable, you know, generally speaking. Um, so, so yeah, that, that like fifties, fifties to sixties for highs, nice, sunshiny, light breeze. Yeah. That would be my, okay. my ideal. All right. In, to close out your article, like carp, you offer a bonus trait and you, you called yours, forget the past, focus on the now. What do you mean? So quail hunting is an unbelievably nostalgic and backward looking sport, or it can mm. be. And, you know, uh, I, I, I'm not a, a young quail hunter anymore by definition, but I guess compared to a lot of guys, I still am. I mean, mm. full disclosure, I'm, I'm, I'm 32. Um, <laughs> <Liar>. <laughs> I'm 51. Um, but I, rem- I distinctly remember, you know, one of my, one of my main memories of, of, uh, of interacting with older quail hunters is them always talking about how much better it was in the past, hmm. you know, and for a, for a long time, for me as a young guy, as a young quail hunter, that was such, um, uh, it, it was discouraging because hmm. You know, I would go out here. I, you know, I, I moved up to this part of the state 20, 27 years ago. And I was, I thought that I was in quail nirvana, you know, because this is the part of the state that is traditionally sort of the quail stronghold, you know, the western mm-hmm. part of the state. And, and I would go into the local gun shop and talk to old dudes who, you know, that asked me how I did. And I say, ah, oh, you know, I, I moved, I moved, you know, three cubbies and I, I shot three or four birds. And they would just disparage that. And, you know, and it's like, ah, oh, when I was a kid, we just, you know, they'll fill them, fill a gunny sack up with it. We just take one walk without a dog and shoot our limits and then go back and shoot another limit the same day. You know, it's like all mm-hmm. of that, the golden years, you know, it's like mm-hmm. everything, everything was always better in the past, which, okay. Yeah. Historically quail numbers have declined over the years. That doesn't mean that, that you have to base your expectations and your measure of success against theirs, you know, against how it used to be. And I had to really readjust and reassess my, my expectations for, for what I, I, I consider success. And I think to be a modern day quail hunter, that's what you've got to do. You've got to focus on the experience. You can't, mm-hmm. you know, bag limits mean absolutely nothing. Uh, don't, don't even worry about, well, did I, did I shoot a limit? Well, mm-hmm. newsflash, you're not going to shoot a limit or you're rarely going to shoot a limit and you shouldn't even try. I mean, I think that if you're if you're wanting to, to, to be a quail hunter, you you become a quail hunter for reasons that are way more intrinsic than than numbers. You know, mm-hmm. you do it for the experience you do for what you get out of it. And and I think if if you want to have if you want to become a successful quail hunter and enjoy it. That's what you've got to do. You can't you can't focus on on results, empirical results. Is there a moment that you chase in every season in every quail hunt? Is there a sequence, or is it purely just uh, an escapism for you? I mean, it, it, it's obviously a combination of a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I. Uh, and I think I've said this before, you know, I, I, I'm not a, a particularly lonely person. 
but I love bird hunting because it takes me to lonely places. And I, I just, I thrive on, on that sense of, of smallness that, that, that quail hunting, especially quail hunting Western landscapes brings to me and, and gives me. Uh, so that aspect of it is very, you know, very important to me, but you know, I am going to fall back on cliche here. Uh, I mean, if you're asking me like for the perfect moment, mm -hmm. I mean, it, it does always go back to watching my dogs. You know, yeah. uh, and that's the, of course, that's the stock answer that everybody will give you. But, you know, that moment and, and it, yeah. you know, it, it has to be and you, you know, there, there are varying levels of of awesomeness when it comes to points, too. I mean, you know, it's like, you know, it's some some points that the dogs go on if they're if they're not in like the perfect spot for everything to like, you know, that whole triangulation to come together. I mean, it's it's cool, but it's not like that that golden trapped in amber moment, you know? <laughs> uh, so, so like if I had a perfect moment, it would be, mm -hmm. it would be that, you know, it's like when yeah. everything comes together at the same time, at the perfect moment in the perfect spot. That's, that's kind of what I chase. <laughs> yeah. It's <clears throat> to me, you know, like yeah, there, there are a lot of folks that uh, particularly in the pheasant world will talk about the maj majesty of a rooster cackling and flushing or the thunderous rough grouse flushing out of the woods. But in terms of a moment, a bird flush, like there is nothing that beats a covey of quail rising together as one. And you can feel the vibration of the their wings before you even hear them or see them. And you just feel that, that electric liftoff is just is probably the most magnificent component of any kind of bird hunting. Oh, it, it is absolutely addictive. If a pharmaceutical company could synthesize mm -hmm. the the feeling you get from that moment, we'd be a nation of junkies. We're gonna chase those hits all fall and winter long, as we go out in search of all sorts of species of quail, from bobwhites to merns, gambles, valley scalies and and if you're lucky enough maybe even a mountain quail um a closing thought for you chad on this uh this episode of on the wing podcast and tips for um for finding public land quail Let's see how long-winded can i be <laughs> it's it's your it's your closing <laughs> thought so it's all yours well i i'll leave with a little bit of an anecdote um uh, i so like, and it goes back to, to bicycling. So I, uh, I was riding my bike this past, oh, two weekends ago, and I was coming down a gravel road and I live in an area of a lot of oil field activity. So there's an oil field truck coming down the road in the opposite direction. So, you know, I always pull over to the side of the road and, and let them pass so they don't smash me. And so I, I pulled over and there was a, into this, I'm in the bar ditch, just a, a little strip, probably two feet wide, uh, of, of grass, I think it was blue stem. And then right next to the, like a, the corner of a pretty well-chewed pasture, you know, that, that had real sparse cover. And so I, I pulled over right there and no other cover around it. And uh, I pulled over there, oil field truck drove by, cloud of dust and everything. And so I, I get ready to get back on the road and I flush a covey of, of half-grown quail out of that tiny little strip of grass right there by the side of the road. Hmm. And it was an area that I, I never would have expected a covey of quail to be. Uh, and so I, it, it pointed out to me in, in pretty dramatic fashion that 
as as much as we can like make generalizations and 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 make statements about you know where to where to find quail and how to find quail and how to be a more successful hunter the fact is that like the only thing i really know about quail hunting is that i'm always learning and i, I don't mm. really know that much about them and that's the appeal to me so i guess my last my, my my closing thought would be never never discount anything if anyone tells you that they figured this out that that's a pretty good sign that they haven't <laughs> you know that's a that's a really good piece of advice we we all like to uh, like to extol you know knowledge but um the person that's quit learning is probably the least smart person in the conversation right yeah they they are every little experience every little interaction with a quail is going to teach you something if you just let it right on all right folks that's chad love editor of the quail forever journal if you're not yet a member of quail forever please join us online quailforever.org we got our brand new autumn appeal fall appeal it's a hat combo um become a member get the hat get the subscription to the quail forever journal and most importantly in the 40-year history of pheasants forever and quail forever 90 cents on the dollar has gone into the crown to create more wildlife habitat for upland birds so the most efficient nonprofit conservation organization in the country and you can be a part of our success now and into the future by joining quail forever at quailforever.org and if you're not yet a member and haven't received this uh year's super issue and you want to get this article that's a companion to the podcast we just talked about seven traits of a public quail hunter public land quail hunter drop me an email at bobs at quailforever.org and let me know you just joined and I will get an issue of the super issue sent in the mail to you uh, to make sure you you have the story that goes with this podcast. Um, all right. Thank you for listening to this episode of On the Wing Podcast. I'm Bob St. Pierre. And for Chad Love, we're reminding you to always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks for listening, folks.